Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I just mentioned, we are currently in chapter 17, looking at the true Lord's Prayer. Pay no attention to that baby off to the side there. It's my grandson. Uh, but this is the true Lord's Prayer. And uh, we have named this series with Jesus behind the veil because we uh, are getting a glimpse of Jesus communing with his Father in prayer in the Holy of Holies of the temple in heaven. So we have said that simply this prayer is divided into, th into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself, then Jesus prays for his disciples, and then Jesus prays for all believers, for all of us. Now, last week we started looking at the second main part of this prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. This covers verses 6 through 19, and I'd like to read that entire section um, before we start talking about it. Uh, Jesus is now praying to his Father for the, the men that had followed him for the last three and a half years. He said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because... They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by your truth. Now, there's a lot there, but I want you to key in on for a second verses 14 through 16. And it's obvious that what was on the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ this night, hours before the cross, was spiritual warfare. Now, not the warfare he would experience in a few hours, where he would actually sweat drops of blood, the attacks of the devil would be so intense. Now, he was concerned about the warfare his men would experience 
Once he went to the cross, arose from the dead, and then eventually ascended back to his Father in heaven, and they would pick up the mantle of the ministry he had begun on the earth as he commissioned them to do, to go into all the world uh, with the good news of the kingdom, because the Lord Jesus Christ knew that they were going to, uh, to face incredible persecution from the devil, his demons, and from all those in the world whose lives were, back then and are, even today, under the control of the God of this world, Satan. And so, the Lord, whoever lives to make intercession for those who are his, does that right here. He intercedes for them, right here, out of a heart of deep love and concern for their welfare. This prayer by Jesus for his disciples in verses 6 to 19 can be divided many ways. And I kept rereading it and praying, Lord, how do you want to outline this? I mean, what do you want to say? Break it into little sections so that, you know, people can have, it's not like all the verses, but have little things to work through, right? Where you uh, can, can keep kind of, it's easier to memorize five things than, than, you know, 15 verses, okay? And that was the idea. And so as I began to keep reading the verses, uh, certain words began to pop out from each of the sections. And I'll just share them with you. There's five of them. Identification, verse 6. Revelation, verses 7 and 8. Supplication, verses 9 to 13. Separation, verses 14 to 16. And then sanctification, verses 17 to 19. I heard a pastor say one time, and I've always remembered it, these simply guys are some nails to hang your thoughts on. Okay? Just five words that come out of the passage that we'll, we'll look at this passage in the light of these five things, five nails to kind of hang your thoughts on. All right? Make it a little easier to, to get it all, you know, where you can remember it. Now, what do I mean by these words? Well, you'll understand as we go through them. The first one is identification, verse 6. Let's read it again. Where Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. When something belongs to you, you identify it, right? How do you do that? Well, you often write your name on it. If you're going to college, you went to Walmart, like we went with our kids, you bought a bunch of stuff, and one thing you also bought was a black magic marker because you needed to put your name on everything. That identified those things that belong to you. Jesus is identifying those who belong to him. Listen, those the Father had given to him in eternity past, those that were chosen to be his bride. I'll read to you Ephesians 1, verses 3 uh, and 4 where Paul talks about this. There's many other verses. I just want to pick out these two. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, there's a whole big debate about what it means to be chosen by God. I don't have time to get into it today. We did take two messages a few weeks ago where we developed that. You can look them up. John chapter four, uh, 15, verses 14 to 16, chosen by God, parts one and two. If you weren't here, I recommend you get that because we went into the subject of being chosen by God 
um, in some detail. So we were chosen to belong to Jesus in eternity past. Now from that point, our identification with Jesus was, listen, ratified, which means made official, through a blood covenant, which Jesus shed, when Jesus shed his blood on Calvary's cross, to redeem us back to God out of, this, out of our slavery to sin, Satan, and death. His death for our sins, guys, made our identification with him possible. The dictionary defines the concept of identifying with someone in part as, and I'm quoting, to become the same. In other words, oneness. To be united in spirit, outlook, and principle, doctrine. So there is a, 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 you identify with somebody, who they are, and many times students identify it with a teacher because of what they teach. And that really is what we're talking about. We talk about identifying with Jesus. Uh, one of the classic passages in the, in the New Testament on the subject of identifying, or in other words, becoming one with Jesus, is found in John chapter 6 in his famous The Bread of Life Discourse. If you turn there, classic passage on what it means to become, well, one with Christ. Uh, there's other passages we can look at, but I just want to give you an idea what we're talking about. This is from, from his famous Bread of Life Discourse. I won't read the whole thing. I picked out the verses that just the, so the continuity flows, okay? You can look, read the whole thing on your own. Starting with uh, verse 35, John 6. Jesus said to them, now this was the crowd, no doubt containing uh, Pharisees and scribes as well. He said to them, I am the bread of life, verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, these would be the Jewish leadership. The Jews, therefore, quarreling among, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat. They were thinking he was talking about cannibalism. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life, uh, you have no life in you, no spiritual life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself what his disciples, uh, that his disciples complained about this, he said to him, Does this offend you? Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Uh, there has probably been very few things Jesus said that have generated so much controversy as this teaching has generated. 
the Catholic Church that I grew up in, they believe this is their biblical mandate to teach the doctrine of transubstantiation. What is that? It's a belief that during the Mass, the wine and wafer are magically, they don't call it magically, but are transformed literally into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when a Catholic goes up and receives the host, they are ingesting the body of Christ. And the Catholic Church teaches that as you ingest the, uh, the um, Eucharist, the wafer and all, which is Christ's body, uh, you receive installments of eternal life. That's why you have to keep going to Mass and partaking of the Eucharist because you are re receiving installments, installments of everlasting life, spiritual life, which will accrue and someday uh, allow you, if you're, uh, not, if you're in good standing with the church, will allow you to have uh, entrance into heaven and so on. Um, the problem is the Jewish people would have recoiled in horror if they had truly believed Jesus was teaching eating his literal flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, cannibalism was something that is horrific to a lot of people. The Jews were no different. I mean, his disciples didn't shriek in horror and run for the hills. They believed he was speaking spiritually. And in fact, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, not eating my physical body. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I'm not speaking literally about literally eating my body and drinking my blood. I'm talking spiritually. Well, what's the point? What was the Lord saying? What was he teaching then? Well, the main idea Jesus is expressing in this discourse, he's talking about how a person becomes one with him through faith. Through faith. Which is really, guys, what salvation and eternal life is really all about. Becoming one with Christ. This is the idea. I mean, this is a, a New Testament doctrine that's woven throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, books like Ephesians were almost dedicated exclusively to this concept being in Christ, one with Christ, right? And um, you see the scribe, and remember now, Jesus is trying to combat religion, which a lot of, well, let's be honest, the Jewish people had wholeheartedly embraced, not the least of which were the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus wanted to teach, and he did all throughout his ministry, that religion will never save you. It, it, it requires a relationship. And you enter into that relationship through saving faith. Hold on to that. You see, the scribes and Pharisees had religion, which at best put them in, listen, the vicinity of God, but could never make them one with God. When a person believes in Jesus to the point of commitment, which is what saving faith is really all about. Now, we spent, well, three weeks ago, we spent a whole Sunday talking about this, and at which time we said, listen, there is a faith that saves, and there is a faith in Jesus Christ that doesn't save. One is saving faith, the other is not saving faith. What, do I, what am I talking about? Well, even the demons believe and tremble, James tells us. I mean, there's a lot of folks, and I was one of them, who grew up in the Catholic Church and believed everything about Christ and, and all then that I believe now. But I wasn't saved then. Because I hadn't believed to the point of making a commitment to Christ. Remember we talked about the marriage analogy? 
how we're even called the bride of Christ and he's the bridegroom? Because God is stressing the idea of, of believing to the point of committing ourselves to Christ. The demons haven't committed themselves to Christ. They all believe what we believe. They're not saved, of course. And that's the idea that um, when you really believe in Jesus to the point of commitment, you become one with him. Guys, again, when a person exercises saving faith, what they do is they invite Jesus into their heart and they literally, spiritually speaking, become one with him and he becomes one with them. And that's why the Lord used the uh, analogy of eating bread to drive home what he was teaching. It's because when you eat food, it enters your mouth and then your stomach where it is digested. And from there, it is assimilated into every part of your body where it literally becomes one with you. This is what Jesus was getting at. This is the difference between religion, the kind of head knowledge that the scribes and Pharisees had, and then a relationship, which comes with, which comes, you know, with Jesus when you give him your heart. You become one with him. That's saving faith makes you one with Christ. Now, you say, well, did he have to say it quite so... I mean, this is like, you know, a shocking, outrageous how we phrase this. Yes, but the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to shock people. He knew he had a lot of would-be disciples who weren't really saved. And every once in a while, he kind of thinned out the group, didn't he? This was one of those places. He didn't want groupies. He wanted genuine disciples. And so he, he states this concept of what it means to really believe in terms of eating food. Because when you eat food, that food literally becomes one with you. And the idea is if you don't have the kind of faith that makes you one with Jesus Christ, saving faith, if you got head knowledge, you went to Bible college or seminary, and you got some degree on the wall of your office, Pastor, but you have never made a true commitment to Jesus Christ, guess what? All the head knowledge in the world is not going to save you. Look at you can be a devout scholar. I've, I've read some. The Pharisees and scribes were devout scholars. Jesus said to them, You do search the Scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. Telling us you can be very religious, very intellectual. You can know the scripture. Satan can quote scripture all day long. Satan has memorized the Bible. You think he hasn't? There's a lot of folks that know the Bible. They know the word of God, as somebody said, but they don't know the God of the word. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. And so that's why Jesus said this. He wanted to shock some people. He wanted to drive some people away. Many left and followed him no more, it says in this chapter. But that was good. Because he didn't want to, he wasn't trying to build a big church, quote unquote. He was trying to build strong disciples, right? So saving faith, guys, starts with knowing, first of all, who Jesus is. That's important. Son of God who came down from heaven. We also need to know what he taught about salvation and eternal life. Well, here in John 6, we get a good glimpse of what he taught, right? And then, of course, what he did. Who he is, what he taught, who he, what he did. He went to the cross, 
died for our sins. Three days later, rose from the dead. Look, believing in Jesus with your head is important. I'm not, I'm not putting that down. I mean, the information has got to enter our brain somehow through our ears and through our eyes, right? Uh, you know, I mean, going to church and hearing the Bible taught or the gospel preached, that's important. Because you have to have that information if you're going to act on it. But by itself, guys, as we said a few weeks ago, uh, it's not enough. Again, the demons believe and tremble. you got to take it to the next step and receive Jesus into your heart by faith committing yourself to him. And some would cry out at this point, that's salvation by works. No, folks, that is saving faith at work. I mean, we are living in the last days and apostasy is everywhere. And if anybody, you know, walks into church, the church assumes they're saved. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, if, if they're even given altar calls, people come up all the time and they're never challenged. What, why are you up here? What do you believe? Why do you know what you're doing? Oh, great. You're here. Let's pray. Look at how Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler. He didn't just say, oh, great, you're following me, let's pray. He challenged him. And he challenged him to the point where the man left because he will, wasn't willing to make the commitment that was necessary to pick up his cross and follow Jesus every day as one of his true disciples. I mean, we talked about John chapter 1, verse 12, where John introduces his gospel by saying, but as many as received him, received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And really, we kind of reverse that because that's the idea. Whoever believes in Jesus with their head and then receives him into their heart by making a commitment to him, they are the ones who are now truly the children of God. Again, guys, saving faith is believing in Jesus with your head but then receiving him into your heart as your Savior. Again, it's what some have called believing to the point of commitment. Now, because we went over this a couple weeks ago. After we identify with Jesus by believing in him to the point of commitment, in other words, after we're saved now, we further identify with him by getting baptized in water as a beautiful symbol of our commitment to him. Guys, water baptism, and there are those who would disagree with me because... Churches teach different things on this subject. I'm going to tell you what I believe, what the Bible teaches. Water baptism isn't essential for salvation, but it is a beautiful symbol of our commitment to Jesus. Just like a wedding ring isn't essential for marriage, but is a beautiful symbol of your commitment to your spouse. Look, if you don't wear a wedding ring, it doesn't mean you're not married. Just ask my wife. <laughs> the ring is a symbol. The symbol's not the reality. It's only designed to represent a reality. It's a beautiful sign to all you come in contact with that you have entered into a covenant, into the covenant of marriage with another it's a visible sign of your commitment the same is true with water baptism 
Water baptism is an outward symbol that represents a beautiful inward spiritual reality. But without the reality it represents, which is the, what is the reality? I have made a commitment to Jesus. I have pledged to love him and be loyal to him. Without that reality, the ritual is meaningless, right? There are those who believe because they were dipped in water, they're saved. And now they can do whatever they want because I, I went through water baptism, right? It would be like a man wearing a ring as a symbol of his commitment, fidelity, love to his wife. But he cheats on her all the time. He's absolutely unfaithful every chance he gets. So that ring becomes nothing more than a symbol of his hypocrisy, right? Water baptism was never intended to be a reality in and of itself. It was intended to be a symbol of a greater reality. And if the commitment's not there to Jesus, that's the reality. If the commitment's not there, and, you know, you were water baptized, but you're living in the world, you're living for the world, you're being unfaithful to Jesus every chance you get, guess what? Water baptism is meaningless. It's hypocrisy. And it cannot save you, by the way. It's very important that we understand this, right? Now, as we said, saving faith starts with the right information the gospel and the gospel guys this is important started with revelation with revelation that's our second point verses seven and eight again jesus talking to his father now they have now they have known that all things which i excuse me now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you for I have not given to them the words which you have given me. Excuse me, I'm sorry. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. When Jesus talked about the words that his Father had given him to deliver to his disciples, what did the Father give him? New Testament truth. New Testament truth. What James, excuse me, what Jude said we are to earnestly contend for. Now, of course, Jesus introduces these truths in the Gospels, and the writers of the New Testament expand on them. The epistles are really uh, an expansion and amplification of the simple truths Jesus introduced during his earthly ministry and the writers like Paul and James and John, they expanded on those truths to give us a deeper, fuller understanding of what they meant. Okay? But when Jesus talked about the words his father had given him to deliver to his disciples the truth of God, uh, and in particular the gospel, he was talking about revelation. Not the book of revelation, the act of revelation. Think of it this way. Revelation is the package from heaven containing divine truth. Now, this is important because Christianity claims to be a revealed truth. A revelation is something that has been made known to us by God. I was telling first service, I want you to think about this. Every other religion on the face of the earth was invented by man 
was built on man, except for, G for uh, Christianity, which Jesus Christ, God in human form, came down and give, gave to us um, the truth of God, right? The idea is that um, we, we, we need to understand that um, what we believe uh, is Christians. The body of truth we call, well, New Testament theology or doctrine, but it includes Old Testament where it was first introduced and then, you know, uh, brought to fulfillment in the New Covenant. But uh, the idea is that um, if Christianity had been developed by man, if it was of man, if it was not a divine revelation that God gave to us, right, it would have been uh, a system, which every other religion is, where man is at the center. All about man. All about how man is good. And how man can work hard. And he can earn his salvation. And get to heaven by his own good deeds. And pat himself on the back for all eternity. That kind of thing, right? The very thing God did not want. And what Paul said in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved. Grace is a gift. Uh, through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not the result of our good works, lest any should boast. God didn't want boasting in heaven. He didn't want us all standing around in heaven, patting ourselves on the back and saying, oh, what, we, we sure are worthy, aren't we? We deserve to be here. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that puts man on the outside and God at the center. Man is the sinner. Man is alienated. Man was close to God in fellowship. The fall came, and now we are afar off. But God in his infinite love loved us while we were still dead in trespasses and sins. Sent his son to die for us. He rescued us out of our deadness and uh, out of the uh, coming judgment, right? This is a system that the world would never have come up with. Because it doesn't let the world brag on itself. That's, you know, we talk about the two information streams that entered the world. Both got their start in the Garden, uh, in the garden of Eden, Right? One was the devil's lies and the other was God's truth. And they have filled the earth. Two streams of knowledge, right? You have the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. James says the wisdom of the world is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Why? Because it places man at the very heart of everything. Man's at the center of everything. He is supremely important. Where the wisdom of God says the only life that is worth living is a life where God's at the center. So get off the throne of your life. Let Jesus sit down and take control. Because if you don't, your life will continue to spiral out of control and never have any meaning no matter how hard you search for it. A revelation is something that has been made known to us by God. You realize, of course, that in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Verse 1. Verse 3. Then God said. In the first few verses of the Bible, right up front, we learn that there is a God, that he is a very powerful and intelligent being who created everything, and guess what? He speaks. <laughs> and later we learn he desires to speak to, or in other words, communicate with his creation. Those made in his image. Man. Mankind. Now, theologians tell us that God speaks to us in two primary ways. Through the creation, which they call general revelation, 
and then through the scriptures, which they call special revelation. And once again, a revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is something that would be impossible for us to know through our own logic, intellect, or normal thought processes. It is knowledge that comes through divine input. The Bible says that God is spirit. Spirits can interact with those in the physical realm. They can go back and forth. We are trapped in the physical realm. We are locked in this physical realm. And because man is physical and God is spirit, there is no way a physical human being trapped in a box we call the four-dimensional physical universe can, through the use of any technique like visualization, transcendental meditation, using these techniques, how they can ever poke a hole in the box, climb out, and find God. just won't happen. It can't happen. Now those in the occult who engage in these practices, what the Bible calls divination, trying to contact the spirit realm through a number of techniques and uh, practices, right? Those in the occult who engage in these practices think they are crossing the barrier that separates the natural realm from the supernatural. But guys, that is nothing more than the devil deceiving them into thinking that's what's going on when really it's not. I was telling First Service that, you know, I've heard stories, maybe you have too, of people that have, uh, through meditation, have, uh, have experienced astral projection. What is it? Astral projection. Where they meditate and meditate, all, enter into an altered state of consciousness, and they can, they can actually uh, cause their soul or their spirit to leave their body and can be projected all over the face of the earth, sometimes in the outer space. There are stories where people have projected themselves, astral projected themselves to Mars. And they've seen certain landmarks that, you know, uh, satellites have uh, filmed. Scientists have named craters and canyons and things. And they have been there. They can tell you where they are and check it out. It's exactly true, right? Or people lose a loved one and they go to a medium and uh, who engages in some kind of a, um, where they're, they're calling up the dead, right? I've seen programs where uh, people claim they have the power to uh, contact the dead. And so people are sitting in the audience. I was watching this show, and, uh, and the, the, the person that was conjuring up these spirits of the dead uh, said to somebody, uh, uh, there is a man named John here. He died in a car accident. Uh, uh, you know him. He was your husband in, in this life, and, and he wants you to know he's fine. And just to make sure that you know it's really John, he, told, he said, this happened on, our, on your honeymoon a uh, little crazy little thing that nobody else knew happened, and, but he's sharing it with you so that you know he's your husband. Oh, my goodness. People are sobbing. They're sobbing. Children that have died uh, in accidents or through uh, cancer or something, contacting these kids, and the parents are just sobbing. This is all deception. You don't think Satan has been to Mars? You don't think Satan has been to ancient Egypt where he can't, you know, play in your brain a tape of the landscape of Mars or in your tape that you think you're in some faraway country and you're describing streets and landmarks, but it's really just the devil playing a tape in your brain to get you to think that you are really out of your body 
that what seems to be, uh, you know, in your mind, a reality is just a deception. There are a lot of folks who have bought into this. My heart goes out to them. That's why the if they would just read the Bible and believe what God has said, they would run from that stuff. God denounces divination in both the Old and New Testaments. He says, look, divination is forbidden because you're really opening yourselves up to demons and they're going to mislead you and you're going to mislead others. It's never going to end well. But you have people who are convinced they can do it. Let me just say this to you. No matter how sincere a person is and how hard they try, they are incapable of reaching beyond the boundaries of the physical, natural realm they find themselves trapped in, and therefore they are incapable of knowing anything or understanding anything about a supernatural God. Many centuries ago, Job asked the rhetorical question, can a man by searching find God? And the answer, of course, was no. He cannot. We cannot find God, a supernatural God, through an intellectual quest. It's impossible. As one pastor said, and I've quoted this before, let me read it to you again. He said, and I quote, We can't expect the bug in the bottle to understand the little boy that put it there any more than we can expect the natural man with his natural capacities to understand the supernatural God unless that God chose to condescend come down from his throne and walk among us in some way, unless that God chose to condescend and reveal himself to man, end quote. And that is exactly what God did. We call it special revelation. Special revelation is basically where God invaded the box, <laughs> our physical realm, to communicate to us his truth. It's where God has gotten, you might say, up close and personal with us, with man revealing personal information about himself to us, that he's a God of love, that this is how you approach me, and so on and so forth. He even tells us his name. That's unlike the revelation we can get from general revelation, the creation, which is powerful. The creation declares the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork, day into day utters speech, night into night reveals knowledge. The universe is speaking a universal language, that we can all understand that there is a God who made all this. He's powerful. He, he seems like a good God because there's beauty. And there's it's all this stuff in the universe, and especially on earth, right? But we don't know anything about him from the creation. We have no personal information from the creation that we can understand who he is. That's where special creation comes in. The writer to the Hebrews, you might as well turn there, Hebrews 1. The writer to the Hebrews, and I believe it was Paul, but that's just me. The writer to the Hebrews talked about special revelation when he said, in Hebrews 1, verse 1, God who at different times and in various ways, what? Spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Let me stop there. For centuries, God revealed himself to man in bits and pieces. It's what the theologians call progressive revelation. Some of the ways God has revealed divine truth about himself to us in the past was through prophets, angels, dreams, visions, 
right? This is something the writer acknowledges in Hebrews 1, verse 1, but then he adds in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Guys, the point he is making is that God did speak through the Jewish prophets to the fathers. That would be the Jewish patriarchs and leaders of Israel. But the revelation he gave them of himself, although true, was still incomplete. Incomplete. That's where Jesus came in. Because the greatest and most complete revelation that God ever gave mankind of himself was through the Incarnation, where the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, verse 14. Guys, Jesus Christ became the full disclosure of God to man. And therefore, he was superior to the Jewish prophets as a source of revelation. We've already read these. I'll read them to you again and we'll move on because we've already gone over this material, right? But it was on Jesus' mind and he's repeating himself because things were burdening him. This is one of them. I'll tell you what I mean by that as we close. But Jesus was the superior source of revelation than were the prophets uh, that God sent to Israel in the Old Covenant. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has, Greek is, made Him manifest for all to see. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, to him, to Philip, Have I been with you so long? As Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long that, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? I and my Father are one. And so in John 17, verses 7 and 8, Jesus is making reference to how he revealed God's truth to his disciples. And listen, how they believed what he said, how they received it as God's truth, and believed that he came from God, came from the Father. They believed everything Jesus said about himself and the truth he shared with them, with the truth he shared with them from his Father. They believed all of it, that it all came from God in heaven. Verses 7 and 8 once again. Now, Father, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which I have given, excuse me, I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And listen, they have believed that you sent me. Guys, one of the ways we know a person has true saving faith is whether or not they believe the Bible is the Word of God. And not just believing it with their head, as I said earlier, that's important. you got to get the inf information in your brain. But they take it to the next step and receive Jesus into their heart as their Savior. Look, there are many religious people in the world who reject the Bible as being the word of God and Jesus being the only way to God. The only way to heaven, right? The scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of these groups. 
you can be very religious. Again, you can know the Bible. There's a lot of theologians who know the Bible but don't believe it's inspired. They don't really believe it's the Word of God. They don't really believe Jesus was virgin born. They don't really believe he died in the cross. He was put in the tomb and was revived by the cold air. He didn't really die. These are Christian, quote-unquote, theologians and professors. Well, here's a few professors right here in John 8. If you turn there. Because in John chapter 8, guys, Jesus had quite a um, encounter with the scribes and Pharisees. Didn't go well. By that I mean they didn't receive anything he said. Well, let's read it. Verse 37. I know that you are, see, because, you know, he claimed that he was, uh, you know, that um, Abraham rejoiced to, to see his day and he saw it. And they said, you know, we, we are Abraham's descendants. Jesus, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Just wait, it's, it's going to heat up more. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. See, now that was the slam that they kept slamming Jesus with. That this whole idea that he was virgin born, give us a break. Your mother had an affair with some guy. She got pregnant. You were born. And to cover it, she said, an angel came. Told me I was going to be the mother of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow me. And without having any sexual contact with God, he was going to place in my womb the seed of God. And the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Oh, give us a break. That's what they're saying. We weren't born of fornication like you. Our father is God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you, why do you not understand my speech? Here it is, guys. Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Talking all the way back with Abel. How Cain killed Abel. It was the devil working in Cain. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He speaks in his own native language. For he is a liar and the father of it. But, because, but I, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's, word, God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not 
of God. And that is the bottom line. That's what we were getting at when we said, look, one of the ways we know that a person really has saving faith, do they believe the Bible is God's word? And the Bible points to Jesus. Do they believe Jesus is God in human form? Who went to the cross, who died for their sins, rose again the third day from the dead. And without him, there's no way they could ever get into heaven. Forget all your rituals and ceremonies. Not going to do it. But these men had their degrees. They had uh, on the wall of their office their little plaque, no doubt. Uh, their sheepskin. <laughs> How they graduated from, I don't know. Uh, you know, the Bible University of Jerusalem or whatever. But they were as clueless as it gets. You know, I just love it when you're watching a program and they got some expert on there, some theologian. I'm telling you, I listen to these people and I'm going, are you kidding me? They reject everything, pretty much Jesus taught. Why do they do that? Because... They are not of God. They are of their father, the devil. Now we pray for them. We want to see them saved. But let's be under no illusion that they're, they're not saved, right? Guys, we'll wrap it up. When Jesus said to these religious leaders in verse 37, my word has no place in you. That's interesting because the Greek word means to advance, to make progress, or to go forward. The Pharisees, even though they had heard Jesus preach many times, because they were always looking for something they could you know, trap him with, right? So they were right there in the front row. But it wasn't for the right reasons. They were there because they wanted to catch him in something they could use to accuse him with, right? But even though the Pharisees had heard Jesus' words many times, it was in their brain, yet they willfully rejected his teachings and hence his words, Jesus' words, never progressed from their heads, listen, to their hearts where they made a commitment to Jesus, right? What we're talking about. If it had progressed from their heads to their hearts where they had made a commitment to Christ, they would have been, as Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations, old things would have passed away, all things would have become new, and the fruit of the Spirit would have started growing in their lives, the fruit of a changed life didn't happen because they never accepted Christ. Look, guys, unbelievers can come to church. They can hear the word of God when it's presented as the pastor. A guy like me sows the seed of the word. We can't, we can't uh, control what kind of hearts it falls on. Read the parable of the sower. Some of the seed falls on hard hearts. The devil, because it can't penetrate, the devil swoops in and plucks the word of God from their heart. Some of it falls on, you know, shallow hearts or, you know, worldly hearts and, um, uh, you know, is Jesus shallow hearts and stony hearts. These are people that hear the word and maybe they even pray to receive Christ, but they, it's not really in their heart. It's emotionalism. You know, they, they, they hear the message and it touches them emotionally and they come up and they pray, but they're not making a commitment to Jesus. They just, they, they like the idea that, you know, that church can, can make them feel better about themselves. They eventually fall back into the world because they're still of the world. But then you have those who the seed penetrates, they love Jesus, they embrace Jesus, they're child, children of God, they go on to serve God, and it's a beautiful thing. Their life changes incredibly. That's why Jesus said in Luke 8, 18, 
Pay attention to how you hear when you come to church. To those who listen to my teaching more, listen with their hearts, more understanding will be given to them. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from him. You can go to church and hear what the pastor's preaching. But are you listening with your heart? A lot of folks here go out that door and they never intend to do anything with it. As we said a couple weeks ago, this is one of the main ways we know, know the children of God from the children of the devil. The children of God have God's word securely planted in their hearts. It abides in them. Even as John said in 1 John 2, verses 24 and 5, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us who have the word hidden in our hearts, eternal life. That's what he's promised us. Because we're genuine, our faith is real, right? Well, let me just finish this and we'll close because I want to end with something. Um, the reason the word of God abides in our hearts, and the Greek word means to continue, remain, right? The reason the word of God abides in the believer's heart is because they believe that that word being preached is in fact the word of God. And therefore they, we, have made room for it in our lives. We have given place to God's word. In fact, it, it's not just giving God's word place, it's allowing it to displace all the junk that was in our hearts, right? All that we were brainwashed with the, from the devil all the years we were not saved. Our heads were full of garbage. The Word of God is a way of displacing the junk of the world with the treasure of God. But again, this is the main way, one of the main ways that we know that we are children of God. God's children love His Word, yes, and we prove it by obeying it. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Those who keep my commandments, are they, are they that truly love me, he said. We've talked about how that obedience to the word of God is the litmus test that proves that we are truly children of God. It's not just going in one or out the other. We're taking it to heart. We want to incorporate it into our lives, right? And I was going to take you to Matthew 7, last two weeks in a row I had Matthew 7, verses 21 to 28, in my notes, but I ran out of time both weeks. So you can read that on your own, okay? But, but one, one more scripture from earlier, John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they what? Follow me. Obedience, right? Now, let me just end by saying this. Last Today, last week, maybe the week before, we have been talking pretty much about the same thing. How do we know we're really saved? What does eternal life look like? And we've been talking about it, right? And so um, last night, and again this morning, I said, Lord, uh, as I'm looking over my notes, thinking, Lord, I feel like I've been preaching this same message for three weeks now. Am I really hearing from you? Because that's always a possibility, okay? 
But I'm not hearing from God. I said, but Lord, you know, is this really what you want me to, because I feel like we've covered this. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me, and I'll just kind of quickly tell you what I feel he said. He said, look, he said, Phil, you have to understand. The words of Jesus, the prayers of Jesus in this section were things that he was burdened about that had happened through the course of the evening. Remember how the evening started in the upper room with the Passover, right? And Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. And um, Peter didn't want him to wash his feet because that was the task of a lowliest servant. Lord, who am I that you should wash my feet? If I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part in me. Then I'll take a bath. Jesus said, those who are really born saved don't have to take an entire bath. They just need their feet washed. What does that mean? Once you're saved, you don't need to be saved all over again. But you do need to have your feet washed because you walk in the world. And the world's a defiling place. And so we come home and we get into the Word and we let the water of the Word, Ephesians 5.26, wash us. We, we get the junk out of, our, out of our minds once again, right? But Jesus said, you're all clean except for one because he knew the one who would betray him. Judas was never a true disciple. John 6, verse 70, 71, 72, Jesus called him a son of perdition, a son of the devil. So right before communion, Judas gets up and goes out of the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ. Jesus then gives his true disciples communion, right? Communion. And eventually, they left the upper room, end of chapter 14, start making their way through the streets of Jerusalem towards the Mount of Olives. He stops at the, goal, at the Golden Gate, which had um, vine and, and grape carvings in it. In the light of the full moon, he taught, this, this, taught them this incredible discourse about the vine and the branches. Now, as we went through that, we carefully studied what these branches were. And if you don't really carefully study what the branches that are connected to Jesus are, you're going to come away with a, a whole different interpretation and application. Because he talks about branches that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. <gasps> That's a Christian losing their salvation. I know pastors in the Calvary movement who believe that. No. What was on his mind that night? He was thinking about his true disciples. He was thinking about his father. He was thinking about Judas. And in the light of all of that he was thinking about, he framed this teaching about the vine and the branches where he said, look, not everyone who follows me who appears to be connected to me is really connected to me where my life is flowing through them, spiritually speaking. In other words, you have Judas branches in the church and you have Jesus branches. And this is what Jesus wanted to tell his disciples. This is what he was praying about. There's always going to be true believers and phony believers in the church. Now, he was about to send these men out into the world to preach the gospel. And Jesus knew that some of the people that would follow them and receive their word were going to be Judas branches. Eventually, they would show their true colors. 
And he was concerned because the devil would use that to condemn these people, the disciples, into thinking they weren't doing it right. They weren't really good disciples. Because if they were, when the message was preached, people would get saved and they would get really saved and they would you know, grow and bear fruit and so on. Jesus was praying to his father. <clears throat> father, I'm concerned that when they go into the world, first of all, the devil's going to attack them. The world's going to hate them. It's going to be a lot of spiritual warfare. But one of the things that concerned him was he didn't want his disciples to think that if they shared the gospel and somebody prayed to receive Christ but then eventually walked away, it was not their fault. He didn't want them crushed into thinking, uh, I'm not good at this. Uh, I don't know how to do this. I'm a failure as a Christian. And that would cause them to walk away. He didn't want that. Guys, look. We have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go into the world, into the world and bring Christ to men. We have not been called to bring men to Christ. And if you think... That's your responsibility. The devil is going to tee you up and he is going to smash you with condemnation. We want to see people saved. And we pray for them. And we share with them the gospel. But at the end of the day, it's between them and God. We can't do anything to save anybody. And if a person hears the truth and gets excited and comes to church for a while and then goes back into the world, it's because they were never really saved. It's not our fault. Keep praying for them. Maybe they still will be saved. But this is what was on Jesus' heart. This is what, what he was, was bringing up with his father. This is why I say to you that, look, yes, we've been covering the same thing for a couple, three weeks. You think somebody's eternal life is important enough that we spend a little extra time talking about eternal life and what real faith is, what it looks like and so on. Jesus thought it was important enough to keep rehashing it with his disciples and now as he's praying to his father, we ought to take that to heart. Make sure we get it right. Make sure that we're not, um, yeah, there are Christians who are part of the problem. They have not, not taken the time to really study what the gospel is. They think it's happy talk. You know, come to church and accept Jesus and be happy. But what about the cross? We're going to talk about the cross in our church. What about coming judgment? We're going to talk about that. That, that uh, you know, that upsets people. Well, the gospel is all about taking up our cross and following Jesus. It's not going to be an easy road. There's going to be blessings for sure, but there's going to be a lot of trials and adversity. So we just need to know the heart of Jesus. This is what we're looking at. This, he's not teaching anymore. He's expressing his heart to his Father. This is as beautiful and as basic and as powerful as it gets. We need, we need to know this. We need to really absorb it. And by God's grace, share it with the people we come in contact with. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus came down with the good news, with truth from, from heaven. We thank you, Lord, that we are privileged to be recipients 
of that revelation package containing divine truth. Give us grace to love it, to study it, to feed on it, and to share it. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep praying, uh, keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.